This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Larry Perel in for Charles Feldman. Well, California loses an icon. Senator Dianne Feinstein dies at the age of 90. We go in-depth into how she shaped politics here and in Washington, D.C. And who will Governor Newsom pick to take over for Senator Feinstein? And will that person decide to run for that seat in the next election? We're going to go in-depth on that. Also, a murder mystery that has gripped Las Vegas, L.A., and the hip-hop world might be solved We've got an arrest in the killing of Tupac Shakur. And we start by discussing the life, legacy, and career of Senator Dianne Feinstein and her impact on California. With us now, former California Governor Gray Davis. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, when you heard the news, what were the first thoughts you had? Uh, just sadness. Um, over, the, over the decades, we became very dear friends, uh, she gave me a painting uh, about 10 years ago that still hangs in our condominium. Um, she, she was a force of nature, and I don't think people appreciate how dominant and how effective she was. I'll give you one example. She'd been in the Senate for two years, 1994. Uh, the Judiciary Committee had all males, 90, 96 men in the Senate, four women, and yet she was able to persuade her colleagues to adopt a ban on assault weapons at a 10-year sunset clause. Uh, It had never been done before, and it worked. There were far fewer mass shootings, far fewer purchases of assault weapons, which were plenty effective, uh, and no one has been able to reauthorize that since. So uh, to be a freshman senator, male or female, and get a change of this nature is almost unheard of. To be a woman, unthinkable, but she proved all her doubters wrong. Senator Biden said early on, the chair of the committee, if you can get that done, it's a tall order. I will put it in my uh, legislation, and it became part of the legislation. It became law. So she did nothing else, and she did plenty of other great things. Uh, We need to honor and salute her for that. Absolutely. And uh, I I think that her legacy remains intact. There was concern, though, there at the end of uh, some health issues she was having and a few times when she appeared in the Senate to to have some difficulty uh, understanding where she was. Do you think that that's going to tarnish her memory at all or uh, is is her stature just so much that of a giant that no one's even going to think about it? Um, You know, I think... Those comments were made under the pressures of being on the, in the Senate. I think those concerns are just going to fade and evaporate. I mean, give you another example of what she accomplished. So she had a, a very strong environmental bill protecting the desert, particularly in Southern California. Um, it took years to get that through. Uh, it's enforced so people can hike and enjoy it. And there's still room for bike riders, so everybody gets what they need. She was very much someone seeking common ground. When I think of Dianne Feinstein, I recall the days when Ronald Reagan was president. He was Jerry Brown's immediate predecessor. So I got to know him during the transition way back in 74 and 75 to Jerry Brown. He would have every Wednesday at 5 o'clock, he would have a Democratic speaker, Kip O'Neill, come over. And the Republican president and the speaker would just be the two of them in the room. And they would try and figure out if they had any common ground. And if they did enact legislation and get something done for the American people. Diane Feinstein was very much cut out of that mold. 
back with us is former California Governor Gray Davis. Also with us is USA Today Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page, who just wrote a piece in USA Today about her time covering and getting to know Senator Feinstein. Welcome to the program as well. Yes, glad to be here. Well, uh, so so glad to have you. Uh, you know, Diane Feinstein was viewed by many as a centrist Democrat um, who worked with her, especially the far left. Uh, do you see someone that could carry uh, that weight in the future now in terms of that sort of tenacity and deal making going forward? You know, it's hard to see in Washington at the moment. It is a different town than it was in 1993 when she arrived here and got into the U.S. Senate. It's a less bipartisan place at the Polarization is is fiercer. There are people who try to work across party lines, but you know we're heading toward a shutdown in hours, and that is a sign that we have fewer of those deal makers around these days. Uh, and uh, uh, Governor, Mr. Governor, uh, uh, the current governor, Mr. Newsom's kind of in a tricky place right now, isn't he? As far as looking at uh, who is going to fill out the rest of uh, uh, Diane Feinstein's term, part of the governor's responsibilities and. Uh, he's known all along that uh, while nobody wanted this to happen, obviously possibility existed. I'm sure he'll find a good candidate, and I'm sure he will insist, whoever he names his position, take a public pledge that they will not seek re-election. It's, uh, we've got three fine candidates uh, running for office now, and they have been a long time. Remember, the primary has been moved up, so it's in March not the normal June. So we're not that far away from the primary. Uh, he'll find a good person, uh, someone who will serve out the balance of Diane Feinstein's term, which essentially ends in early January of uh, 2025. Well, there is no apparent deadline for him to uh, make that appointment, but there are reasons why that seat needs to be filled pretty quickly, correct? A big state, there's a whole lot around. Well, look right now. I mean, there's one less vote on the Senate floor to try and find some way to uh, uh, avoid a government shutdown. And, and that means that, you know, people uh, on welfare and, and government aid, much less our troops, their families don't get paid. That's a whole lot of immediate problems. So uh, I would say time is of the essence, and I would expect the governor to move quickly. And But I'm sure he will insist upon some public representation that the person who has that, uh, fills that position as an interim senator, uh, pledges not to run for re-election. And uh, just very quickly, because we're going to talk more about uh, who might be chosen to fill out that seat. And before we go back to you, Susan Page, I want to ask the governor uh, one more question. If you were governor today, Mr. Davis, uh, who would you pick to hold on to that seat until the uh, next election? Going to go down that road. Yes, we are. Not going to go down there. Okay. All right. That's fine. I uh, didn't, didn't mean to put you on the spot there, but I thought it would be interesting to know if you were making that choice because there are some interesting choices and, and possibilities that we're talking about. We're going to talk about those in an upcoming segment. But uh, back to you, uh, Susan Page, uh, as you got to know uh, Diane Feinstein, uh, how did, uh, did she ever talk to you and express how she felt about what was happening in Congress, in general, over these last few years, as things appear to have gotten so much more toxic? You know, I don't want to miss, I was not close personal friends with Senator Feinstein, but I did um, meet her for the first time in 1984 when she was the host mayor of that Democratic convention in San Francisco, where, by the way, the head of the host committee was one political volunteer named Nancy Pelosi. Here are two women 
who since that time have made a big difference in American politics. I think one of the characteristics, though, that Senator Feinstein showed was that she never kind of gave up on the possibility that there were going to be the possibility of bipartisan agreement of moving forward on on big issues. And of course, one of the things that characterized her was her willingness to tackle these enormous issues, I think, in particular about when she was uh, the first woman chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and she pushed an inquiry into U.S. intelligence agencies' behavior in the aftermath of 9-11. That was one something that put her at odds, even with a Democratic president, Barack Obama. So what do you think her most enduring, I mean, there's a lot of firsts that uh, Dianne Feinstein is responsible for. What do you think her most enduring legacy will be among those? Well, the Intelligence Committee work, her work on the assault weapons ban in 1994. More than that, though, I think it was her demonstration that women could have these various jobs in which she was the first one to get there, the first female mayor of San Francisco, the first uh, woman to serve as the, to be elected uh, and to be uh, sworn in as a senator from California, the first woman to chair the Senate Intelligence Committees. This demonstrated to a lot of girls and young women who followed her that it was possible. All right. That is uh, USA Today, Washington Bureau Chief uh, Susan Page, who uh, just wrote a piece in USA Today. I think, did I hear uh, uh, you say something, Mr. Davis? Quick thought. I don't think people remember how dramatic attention to the mayor's office. I distinctly remember it was a Saturday morning. Uh, Dan White wanted a second chance at getting his seat back on the board of supervisors. He had resigned. He managed to smuggle a gun in with him. Moscone said no. He shot Moscone and walked a few feet out the back door and found Harvey Milk and shot him. A lot of disarray. And then four years ago, four years afterwards, when the verdict came down of only four years, there was all kinds of demonstrations, Molotov cocktails. She called me at two in the morning. I was Jerry's chief of staff. Jerry was in New Hampshire. Uh, can, could I send over the highway patrol to assist uh, the deputies, sheriffs? We did. And many years after that, we would be in the same room, and she would always tell that story. We uh, came to her assistance. So I have deep affection and respect for her. When she was on your side, you are going to win. And, and I, as I can attest, when you were not on her side, you were going to lose. <laughs> All right. Uh, former California Governor Gray Davis, thanks so much for joining us. Back to the uh, passing of California Senator Dianne Feinstein. Uh, Governor Newsom has to pick someone to serve out the remainder of her term while others battle for the seat beyond 2025. Now, Tony Smith is a political science and law professor at uh, UC Irvine. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, delighted to be here. All right, right off the bat, let's just get the question uh, out of the way. Uh, who is the governor going to pick? Well, I think there's two main alternatives for him. Uh, one would be Shirley Weber, who's the current California Secretary of State. He appointed her, and then she won the office in her own right when uh, Alex Padilla went up um, to the Senate. Uh, she would be a really good pick because she's something like 75. She spent 10 years in the Assembly. Uh, a lot of the people who are in D.C. that represent California have had relationships with her uh, before, so that that would be a good pick. Uh, a more outside of the box and kind of exciting pick would be LaFonza Butler, who's currently head of Emily's List, but has done um, a lot of different things in the state of California. Um, so I think he is going to stick to his pledge to appoint an African-American woman. Um, I think it's likely to be one of these two. One of the reasons is he doesn't want to interfere too much in an election four months before the primary. I think he 
he, he you know rightly thinks the voters should be figuring out who they want to be in the Senate. Um, if Shirley Bass were still in the House, she probably would be a, a good pick, but uh, she's got her hands full now with her new job that she seems to be taking to. Uh, if he if he changes his mind on not interfering, he might go after London Breed and try to persuade her to do it. Um, but I think she likes being mayor of California or uh, mayor of San Francisco. I think she might want to be governor of California one day. So I don't know if the Senate is a good stepping stone to that office or not. But that would be those would be my guesses, either Shirley Weber or LaFonza Butler. What do you think he's looking for in a, in a pick? Um, I think he's looking for two things. One, somebody he can trust to not change their mind and decide to run. And two, get this over with as soon as possible so Barbara Lee doesn't spend months and months and months yelling at him for um, not appointing her. Uh, someone raised the possibility that uh, he he could pick uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. My first reaction to that is, well, she's already got a job, uh, yeah. but but could that happen, just hypothetically? You, you know, conceptually it could. There's a lot of, uh, I think some political analysts call it the bedwetting branch of the Democratic Party. There's a lot of uh, folks that are Wait a minute, is, is that a real term? <laughs> that's, a, that's a technical <laughs> term. That's a, <laughs> um, you know, you always hear people uh, weeping and crying and gnashing teeth about the vice president and how they're not doing good enough. And it doesn't matter when it was Bill Clinton, it was Al Gore's too much of a rival. When it was Barack Obama, it was Joe Biden's too old. When it was Kamala Harris, she's, uh, oh, she's not doing enough. I mean, she's vice president. She doesn't have a portfolio. So she's not going to step down. Um, to go back and be a senator. <laughs> she had that job. Uh, she's got another job now, and uh, she gets an even better job if her 80-year-old boss passes away. So I think uh, you, you won't see that. Conceptually, it could happen, but it's uh, much more likely uh, that he would be able to persuade Karen Bass to step away from being mayor than Kamala Harris to step away from being vice president. And I don't think there's any shot of either one of those things happening. Um, you know, if he wants to be, uh, you know, go out on a, a limb and do something crazy, he might um, leave it empty. But that really causes a problem for the Democrats in Washington. Um, he might, uh, if Nancy Pelosi hadn't said she was going to run for re-election, he might think about putting her in there. But uh, enough people have clocked themselves out of the running that he's really left with Two really good choices. Uh, both Shirley Weber and LaFonza Butler are very, very smart politicians. And uh, uh, he's so he's got good choices. And, you know, it's not that long term of a thing. You need somebody that's going to not cause problems and uh, uh, more so than worrying about long term. This is one of the reasons uh, Barbara Lee is probably having some trouble getting traction in her race is the Senate is not the place to elect somebody who's not going to be able to serve for three or four terms. You know, the, the, she, she's older than ideal for a new Senator. Um, so. All right, Tony Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, political science and uh, law professor at UC Irvine. 
All right, getting back uh, to KNX In-Depth, uh, I'm Rob Archer, along with Larry Perel, who is filling in today for uh, Charles Feldman. Of course, talking about rapper Tupac Shakur, arrest made today from a murderer. Uh, he was shot and killed in Vegas more than 27 years ago. Yeah, it is a case that's uh, fascinated the public and the hip-hop world for a really long time. And uh, here with us now to talk more about this is Jem Oswad, a senior music writer for Variety. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Greetings from rainy New York. Okay, there, there you go. Hope you're uh, staying dry anyway. Uh, listen, tell us a, a bit more about uh, about this arrest, who it is, and uh, how this is kind of tied to uh, to what happened. Well, I'm not entirely clear on all the details, to be honest with you, because this case has been so muddled over the years. The Tupac shooting and the Notorious Big shooting are, are really two of the big mysteries in hip-hop history i mean mystery isn't quite the word but like you know it's one of the things you just feel like they're never really going to get to the bottom of sure what is most confusing to me is the fact that the person they arrested today basically confessed in a book he wrote <laughs> like several years ago that he was involved in the murder so i mean i may be naive i may not be quite getting it but i am a little confused why if you've got years of of you know, ersatz confessions from this guy, why they didn't arrest him sooner. Maybe they didn't have the specific evidence they needed. Who knows? But yeah, it's you're, a very tangled web. Yeah, you're, yeah. Talk, you're, you're talking about uh, Dwayne Davis, uh, who was indicted yeah, uh, yeah. this morning uh, by a grand jury. Uh, and uh, he was, I guess, in the Cadillac in 2019. Uh, and and claims, I guess, in his memoir from 2019 that he was in the Cadillac uh, from which the uh, gunfire erupted uh, during that uh, attack in 1996. What was it like back then in terms of the culture that was happening East Coast, West Coast when this happened? Well, it was, you know, that and Biggie's murder were the, I want to say like the the peak of it, but that word doesn't even do it justice. It was just awful. Two of the most promising rappers, two of the most promising artists in hip hop history, one was 26, one was 24. Both of them were murdered over nothing except arguments. You know, and, and I mean, it's like it, it one thing I noticed at the time, quite honestly, is uh, two years before Tupac's death, uh, when Kurt Cobain died, MTV was blanket coverage of, you know, vigils and memorials and Nirvana videos for days and days and days on end. And after Tupac was murdered, I couldn't find a thing on MTV. I couldn't find anything on television, which, you know, do the math on that. Um, and Notorious Bigger was the same thing. But, you know, they were – it is absolutely tragic that they were – their lives were cut off so early because I firmly believe that Notorious Big is the greatest rapper in history. Mm. You know, he had um, – you know, if you look at the different categories of what makes a great rapper, you know, their rhyming ability, their storytelling, their flow, um, he was the best in each of those categories. You know, he may not have been the best, had the strongest voice necessarily, but, you know, the, the combination was, was incredible. Yeah. And Tupac, largely the same. Sure was. You know, he, he was more spiritual in a lot of ways. Um, and also, you, you know, not to get too far off track with this, but, you know, Frankly, Tupac quite clearly had a death wish. You know, he, he kept almost inviting somebody That's, to kill him. Yeah, he that, got that, more that, and more that, and more involved in gangs. It was a mess. That, that, yeah. is, that is what some had said, for sure. Uh, we have also with us uh, today Kathy Scott, investigative journalist, true crime author of The Killing of Tupac Shakur and the Murder of uh, Biggie Small. She's reported on uh, the murder in 1996 while working at the Las Vegas Sun. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, so uh, is anybody really surprised at the arrest today and who was arrested, given that it seems there was uh, 
years ago, a confession in the case. Well, we, we've known all along that it was uh, Orlando Anderson and that Keefe D, you know, Keefe D, his uncle, was in the car. Um, that, you know, and there were four people in the car who headed down the strip looking for Tupac and to pay back for beating him up at the MGM Grand uh, after the Tyson fight. So um, it's, um, I, I think that the, there's, I mean, the surprise comes that um, they, um, are very high profile with it right now when they certainly didn't want to be high profile with the case at all years ago. They wanted it to go away. I was told it, it's high profile. We don't want we don't want it here. They why why did they want it to go away? They said it would be all gangbangers and, you know, I'm not going to, you know, say color, but gangbangers and, and bungee hip-hop people and rappers coming to town would be bad for tourism. I was told that straight from the top, a captain. And so they they literally thought the case would go away. There was a sergeant in the um, office. He was head of the, of the unit. That the three-man unit that ran the Tupac investigation, and he came into the office that first week, and there were 300 messages on his in the days of when we had, you know, recorders, you know, that would take messages. So he simply turned off his recording machine, and uh, there there was no sense that they wanted to solve this crime. They knew they knew who did it. The, Compton cops in, in L.A. handed Orlando Anderson to them, and they didn't want to interview him. They were frustrated, the Compton uh, gang cops. And uh, so finally, um, good on them for doing it and, and finally uh, getting justice. And exactly what, you know, I wrote about and, and, and others, too, is what the evidence led to. Uh, was uh, Keefe D and the other guys in the car and Orlando Anderson being the shooters. So good. They're spelling it out. They're all over TV with it. It's belated, but I'm pleased. All right. Kathy Scott, thanks so much for joining us with some some, uh, details there. Investigative journalist, true crime author of The Killing of Tupac Shakur and the Murder of Biggie Smalls, reported uh, on the murder back in 1996. Also, Jim Aswad, senior music uh, writer for Variety. Thanks so much for joining us. Auto workers expanding their strikes against Ford and General Motors. And as these uh, strikes continue against the big three, uh, there is some concern the effects will uh, trickle down the car buyers sooner rather than later. Uh, Larry Prince, internationally syndicated automotive columnist with uh, Tribune News Service. So, Larry, as we were talking, uh, waiting for us to fix our connection with you, uh, we're talking about how big this is, how big of a deal this is, and how it doesn't look like it's getting better. It looks like the strike is going to expand. It certainly does. Um, one minute Ford Motor Company is the darling. The next minute Chrysler Stellantis, excuse me, Stellantis is the darling. It's hard to know when the union and automakers will come together. It seems um, it seems like a hard target to meet. And it seems like Sean Fain said today that uh, Ford, which I, I thought was sort of going along pretty well in terms of negotiations with the UAW, has now sort of fallen out of favor with Ford because there's not enough progress being made. Yes, particularly in the area of EVs. That surprised me as well because it seemed to be going well. 
Ford has had good relations with the UAW for most of its history. So that is a real surprise. And the concern uh, before we have to go is that uh, these effects of this uh, very big strike is going to trickle down to us car buyers sooner rather than later. Uh, Should we be worried about that? And how will that immediately begin to affect us? For the time being, it won't affect us in the short term because stock dealer lots are starting to fill up. There are cars available. But longer term, you are going to see part shortages, so they won't be able to not only build the cars, but you also won't be able to fix them, which is a bigger concern. Uh, One quick question here for you. Uh, The longer this goes on, is it more of a boon for the used car market? Absolutely, because if you can't get a new car, you'll get a used one. And especially for dealers, they'll be happy because as demand picks up, so will prices. Mm. Uh, how are how are prices though right now? Uh, I know for a while there we had uh, supply chain issues, and now we're hit with this uh, auto strike. Are we uh, stuck with high prices, or at some point is this going to kind of filter down, and we might see at least for a little while lower prices? In the near term, you are seeing lower prices, but as the stock, <laughs> excuse me, as the strike goes on, no doubt, and, and shortages appear, um, you're going to see prices rise, no question. For non-union auto plants, um, particularly foreign automakers and Tesla, they're going to really shine. This is where they're really going to be able to clean up. All right. Thanks so much. That is Larry Prince, an internationally syndicated automotive columnist with Tribune News Service, talking about the expansion of the United Auto Workers strike against the big three. I know, Larry, I get concerned because if I have to take my car in and uh, get the wood paneling on the side of the station wagon fixed, I might not be able to find the, the right uh, wood grain. Well, for me, it's the antenna. That's all, it's, right. all, it's, already, it's already bent, bent. over. Got it's the bent antenna. Over. It's, right. It's bent, yeah. right. And it makes it awfully hard to pick up, uh, pick up over the air uh, odyssey.com uh, stream. KNX. Well, I can still get the AM signal. You can still get the AM signal, not the <laughs> FM. Thanks. That's very good. All right, that's it for KNX in depth uh, for this week. Uh, kind of a kind of an odd show today. We had it was uh, a little. Odd. We had a lot of things we had to kind of figure out on the fly. <laughs> we did, yeah. But you know, that's what live radio is all about. That's anyway, right. Larry, thanks so much for you, uh, filling in for Charles, and uh, we'll be back Monday at one p.m.